Hello, folks. This is your host, Tammy Tucky, and you are now listening to the Tierra Talk Show. We bring you rare interviews with the makers of Disney magic. Whether they be singers, actors, Imagineers, animators, they have all made their mark on the Disney name. Be sure to check out the show notes, other episodes, contests, our social media pages from Facebook to Twitter, and more on our official website at www.thetierratalkshow.com. All guest opinions are theirs and theirs alone and do not represent the opinions of the Tierra Talk Show or the host. The Tierra Talk Show is not associated with the Disney Company. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. And from all of us here at the Tierra Talk Show, have a hoop de doo day. Come, baby, come. Let's dig some holes. You'll find it's heaven with sand on your souls. I'm excited to welcome this week's Tierra Talk Show guest. Conductor and orchestrator Gordon Goodwin to the show. Welcome, Gordon. Tammy, thanks for having me on your show. It's really a pleasure. I always love talking with individuals who work in the music industry. I'm really excited to talk about music with you. So let's talk about your beginnings first. You know what I was going to say though when I when I checked out your site. I mean, you're right. You're, this is a this is like a a lobbed pitch down the middle of the plate for me because I've been a Disney geek for so long. I remember when I, the, the first job I got from them, and I, I don't mean to oversteep your question, but uh, the first like kind of big project I got for Walt Disney World, and I was talking to some of the people that, that were on the, on the team, and I'm kind of bouncing off the walls a little bit, you know, I'm so excited to be there and doing it, and I'm saying, so tell me about your guys, uh, you know, your association with the, with the Walt Disney Company, I mean, was, was it was a dream since you were a child to be involved in doing this, and, and like a couple of them going, um, it's a job. <laughs> and I remember thinking, how, how could that be? This is like the most amazing phenomenon in our culture. And yet for some of those people, it was just, oh, just kind, of a, kind of a gig for them. But this company, I think, kind of got its hooks in me as a, like a, I don't know, a toddler. Because my earliest memory, well, actually, it's not really my memory, but it, my mom tells me that I stood in front of the TV and watched the Mickey Mouse Club and like would – like wave my arms up and down like I was conducting the music. So, you know, that had to be late 50s or something that I, I first became aware of this thing called Walt Disney. To answer what I think your question was in terms of, of my first uh, professional gig, like the first professional composing gig that I got was at Disneyland, and they were doing a Mouseketeer reunion show. And so, and this, this show had... Um, some of the old guys like Tommy and uh, Lonnie and Sharon and some of those. Um, but it also had some of the new ones, some of the younger kids. Like, I think it might have been like right before Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera, right before that era. So it was a show that combined the, like, the old ones. And Cubby would play the drums and everything. So that was kind of my first real commercial uh, arranging gig was working on that show. So there's a little bit of symmetry there, I guess. And, and well, what- you know, right, Right, right around the time that I'm sorry to interrupt, but right no, around but, the time that I got that Mouseketeer gig, um, I had my my brother who was five years younger than I was. He got diagnosed with cancer. He was 20, and he had malignant melanoma, which is like a skin cancer, right? and he had a mole on the top of his head. And by the time they caught it, it was fourth stage. So I'm looking at him going through that at the same time that I'm looking at like a kind of a significant career, you know, door opening for me getting to work at Disneyland, getting to work on a, on a pretty big show for them, um, and the, the joy of that. And then, but then looking at, um, you know, what my brother Mark was, was going through. And I think that, um, uh, I mean, that was 
his battle. There's not we could be there to support him, you know, as much as we could. But really, it was his fight. But what it did for me is it made me appreciate um, all the good things in my life. And really, to this day, on my worst day, I get to write music for a living. You know, even if I'm writing music that I don't particularly believe in, which, which happens. You know, because a lot of times the director, the producer says this music should be like this. And I may have a professional opinion that differs from that, but that kind of doesn't matter. My job is to do what the director wants or what the picture dictates, you know. And um, and so so even at the, in the worst of those situations, even when I've had to rewrite a piece of music 10 times and even when the director's changed his mind again and again and back and forth and I'm thinking, oh, when will this ever end? Is that the, you know, I could have a lot worse problems on my hands than having to rewrite a piece of music 10 times. So, and that, I think, my brother Mark helped to teach me that you know, through the experience that he went through. And one of your first projects, one of your other first projects was the beach party at Walt Disney World and also at the camp out at Walt Disney World. Because at the time, they were promoting Fort Wilderness and Blizzard Beach and Typhoon Lagoon around 1993. And I love these songs on these tapes, you know, because I told you off air, I grew up with these tapes. So, And, and I, have to, I have to confess, you know, you're, you're going back in the archives far enough that I don't have a whole lot of details uh, in, in my memory bank. But I think that... Uh, we had to use pre-existing material or, or, or material that had pre-awareness. Like uh, I remember one of the one of the songs. Uh, it might have been a Sherman Brothers song. Uh, and I, I forgive me if I'm mixing my projects back then, but uh, walking right down the middle of Main Street, USA, or making memories. That song with about taking pictures at Disneyland. Remember that one? And some of the songs I think did have. Uh, you know, we could slip something in that wasn't just like a completely old chestnut. Right around that time, or or maybe. A few years after we did those, uh, they called me to do another project that still is uh, unforgettable for me because it was they were releasing a Laserdisc version of Snow White. And what they wanted to do is that they had a bunch of special features for it, you know, and they, and they wanted to take a scene that had been animated um, but not inked and painted. And it, would, it, it had gotten cut from the film because they decided they didn't, it, it had slowed the story down. But it, it was a really interesting scene about, uh, about them eating soup, you know, and, and they said, can you take and write music to this? Because we want to show it, you know, the people that buy the laser disc, but we'd like to have, we have the dialogue. We just want to put some music so they can kind of, and because they're going to cut it into the film. So I had to write music in that style. Now, I didn't have anywhere near the resources that they did back then. I mean, I had, I had a small, small budget. Matter of fact, if I remember correctly, I didn't make a penny. I just threw all the money into, into hiring the biggest orchestra that I could. Because I had to have my music fit in context with the music, you know, from the, you know, they probably had a 50 to 60 piece orchestra back in, you know, 1939 it was, um, to record that score. So I had to study the style and be able to write music that would then flow, you know, from the original score to that. And working with that animation was like, uh, I felt it was, I was on sacred territory. And you could look at the at the work of and, and thinking thinking about the legacy of that of that picture, you know, where no one thought knew if people would sit still for ninety minutes to watch an animated cartoon, and at the time when Walt and those guys were trying to instill character animation, like you could watch one of those characters and see them think. How do you do that with a pencil and a piece of paper, you know? And I could and, and looking at the pencil test that I had to work with, you could really see the personality of these characters, probably more so than after they take and ink it in and color it in. It kind of, that process tend to, I think, dissipate the, the uh, nuance of the, of the drawings a little bit. 
to look at those those early pencil tests, it was uh, fascinating. But I also remember I had about a week to do it. I had no time, you know. Wow. Which is often the case, you know, when you're when you're working on projects, you know. So now you also worked on Sing Me a Story with Belle. This was another TV series that actually uh, was on Disney Channel for maybe one season. It, yeah. it didn't really take off. Now, since this is a TV show, I, I'm wondering is the process just as quick because you had to write a song for this project in around 1999. Mm, so it was- it's, uh, t- anim- TV animation deadlines are also pretty severe. Now, in the case of that, that show, we had a team of people that were writing the songs, which they got on the project earlier. And then a team of us that were doing the underscore. Um, and, and we came a little, little bit later. Um, we had a lot of the same limitations that we didn't have a huge budget for an orchestra. But once again, that was, that was, I had forgotten about that, that project. And that's a, in a similar way, you know, you're working with kind of sacred material. I mean, I, I yeah. did Mickey, Mickey and the Beanstalk, and uh, I forget the other titles that I got to work on there. And uh, you also feel like in that case, it, with the Snow White thing, I was adding music to a thing that had never been scored. Whereas now we're replacing music scored by some of the animation composer pioneers, people that, you know, Carl Stalling and people like that, that figured out how do you score animation and make it look realistic, you know, and make the characters come alive. So we're dumping that music and putting our own in. That was... Uh, that it was kind of an ethical challenge for us a little bit. I cringed a little bit to think that I'm going to replace this, this classic stuff with my own material. Uh, but on the other hand, it was, you know, I learned a great, I learned so much from being able to, to work with that. And, uh, you know, in other, in later years, I worked at Warner brothers working on some of their shows like Animaniacs and Pinky and the Brain and that stuff. And with some of your other projects, I have to mention some of my favorites. You know, you've worked as a conductor and orchestrator, as we mentioned. You know, Armageddon, National Treasure, Lion King One and a Half, The Sorcerer's Apprentice. You know, I just, I love these, I love these films, you know. And, and I, I think music really helps tell the story. So when you're on board for these projects, how are you, are you working with the composer as well to get that correct sound that they are also looking for? Yeah, my, my role in most of those, uh, pictures you mentioned was working for the composer Trevor Rabin. Trevor would compose uh, into into a computer, and he would use synthesizers and samplers in order to kind of mock up what his music would sound like, play it for the director or, and the producer, and then they'd say, yeah, we like it, or change this, or whatever. And then he gives it to me, and then I have to then take his uh, computer demos and translate them for a, a real orchestra. Because there are certain things you can... When you're writing for um, live musicians, like a full symphony orchestra, you you would treat that a certain way. But if you if you try to write the same way for a computer, it sounds lame. It doesn't work. Uh, it doesn't. The computer doesn't really have the same sort of a uh, you know humanity. I guess is really the right the right word. Like you hear an orchestra, so it's 90 people and it's 90 different personalities, right? Of 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 the you know most skilled musicians in, in town. And that adds up to something that's kind of an intangible thing. Like each orchestra, you know, like the London Symphony has a certain sound and personality. The Boston Symphony does. LA Philharmonic has a different sound too. So, and this is a result of all the different personalities in the orchestra. So, however, one computer sounds like another computer. So, so that was kind of my, my goal is to look. So Trevor's job, he would have to write. And the big hurdle is to get the director to say, yes, okay, I like that. 
the days of a composer sitting at a piano and playing a, a, a here's the theme and saying, and this will be trumpets and this will be strings and, and, you know, trust me, it'll be fine. And the director go, yeah, I hired John Williams, so I know it's going to be good. Those days uh, have, uh, are a bygone era because now composers have to pretty much um, demo down to the last detail everything that the music's going to sound like. The directors want to know. So, so after uh, we get past those meetings and I get the music and then I have to say, okay, this counter melody uh, that he put in the synth, maybe I don't need that because that added a little energy, but in the live context, it clutters it up. So we won't miss that. So I'll take that away and I'll revoice this chord and, and, you know, things like that. So then I'd get the music ready and then I would conduct the sessions and conduct the orchestra on the sessions. And um, uh, sometimes, you know, he might say, hey, can you finish? I didn't finish composing this cue. Can you fill in the blanks here? But for the most part, he would send me pretty detailed uh, demos that had pretty much all the music, you know, fleshed out. And then I'd take it the rest of the way home. Source's Apprentice was um, an interesting one. Because there was a disagreement amongst the uh, amongst our bosses about whether to use the theme from the Fantasia cartoon, right? Right? Everybody knows that when they see Mickey Mouse or the Broomsticks, they go, "That's the music you hear." And I, personally, I thought, how can you do a, a Sources Apprentice without referencing that theme so, in some manner, you know? We did end up using it. Um, not a lot, but we in one particular scene, we kind of used it verbatim. Um, I got the original score and pretty much kind of translated. It was written for a bigger orchestra than what we had, so I had to translate that. And you've been doing a lot since then. I remember reading on your website that you formed something called the Big Fat Band around 1999, and I thought mm-hmm. maybe it would be best if you tell the story. <laughs> well, you know, I, I've I've loved big band jazz since I was maybe seventh grade. I first heard Count Basie in seventh grade and, and somehow it resonated with me like, oh man. I mean, I, at that time, I was still a huge Disney guy and I remember the, maybe the first jazz I can remember hearing was in the Jungle Book and, and you know, King Louis singing I Want to Be Like You, Ooh, Ooh and I thought that, they had these scat singing monkeys in that scene and that really made an impression on young Gordon, you know, and then uh, in seventh grade, my band director said, you should, you should uh, write some of this kind of music. And I said, how do you do that? He goes, oh, you'll figure it out. And so I wrote my first big band uh, arrangement in seventh grade, and I was lucky enough that the kids in the band liked it enough to play it, and, and to uh, we played it on the spring concert, you know, and recorded it on our on our record and, and all that. So that led to a lifetime of, of uh, love for big band music. But what I learned soon was not everybody shared that love, that big band music was was pretty far outside the mainstream of American pop culture. Like my classmates were like, what are you talking about? Why do you like that old stuff? You know? And then I got after I got out of college and got into the workforce and people would say, matter of fact, you know what? That Mouseketeer show, one of the things I learned from that, I would stick like kind of jazzy things in there because I thought it was cool. And I thought everyone will think it's cool. But that not everybody did think it was cool. And I had to go back and kind of take a lot of it out. So um, I've learned over the years that I, if I want to make money, if I want to be able to pay my bills and support my family, I'm not going to do it right in big band jazz. So that's why I started you know, working on more other commercial music and, and working for the Walt Disney Company and things like that, where I'm writing music that's you know, pretty far afield from that. But my home base was always there you know, with jazz. So 
when I around 1999, I was working at Warner Brothers, and and it was a really great time. We were winning Emmy awards, and we were just doing some great work and having a great time. And yet, I remember th- had an epiphany. I thought, is this who I am? Am I just a guy that hops from project to project? And I'm a little chameleon. And okay, this time I'll be like Disney, and this time I'll be like a Warner Brothers guy, and this time I'll be you know whatever the case is. Is that what I who I am? And that's a noble career. A lot of guys do that. There's nothing wrong with that. But um, I thought, you know, you get to a point in your life where you think maybe there's more road behind me than there is ahead of me. Maybe I should plant my flag. So I, I, I started to um, write big band music. I, I, I would do it at night, like, at, you know, 8 o'clock at night after dinner, I'd go up and instead of sitting at the couch watching TV, I'd write music, you know, from till midnight or something. And then after a few months, I had some music, so I called uh, some of my friends, and we got together and recorded it. And then I didn't know what to do. I go, okay, I've got these. What do I do now? How do I find a record deal, you know, and all that stuff? So one thing led to another. We got a record deal. We started to do gigs. And now it's turned into kind of my my thing, for, for better and for worse, because I've gotten some things like The Incredibles was a gig that I got because of people knew about my work with the big fat man. Which I do want to mention the website for our listeners to go ahead and mm-hmm. check out, which is www.bigfatband.com. And you can listen to more of the band's material because it's it's wonderful. And I was watching you guys perform to Disneyland, too, so it's great. I, I love it. You keep coming back to Disney, but with the band, I, I just love that. I wish I could have seen you when I was there last. <laughs> you know, it, it, it really has uh, given me um, a sense of... Uh, a piece isn't exactly the right word. It's giving me a sense of, of, of honesty, like this is an honest representation of what I believe. And the, they, the both sides work together. Like, I, like this last year, I did two big projects for Disney, and a couple for Shanghai Disneyland, and then a, uh, a big show that just opened uh, uh, the Magic Kingdom, uh, Mickey's Friendship, Royal Friendship Fair. You know, right? And so the resources from those kind of gigs help to support my big band habit. Because most of the big fat band stuff, you know, I mean, we get paid for gigs, but I have to fund it to a large degree. So I'm lucky that I'm able to, you know, get some resources from some of the other gigs I do. And uh, so my life is kind of a balance of those two elements. And I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show. But before we end, we have three Disney-themed questions that we always ask our guests on the show. And we call them the Fab Three. So we'll start with the Donald one, which is, as a child, what Disney film was one of your favorites to see in the movie theater? Jungle Book. Big, huge, colorful, jazzy, enormous impression, and I and I I also think about people like your age that saw it on on home video for the first time. Picture going into that theater and and seeing you know the colors on a big widescreen is nothing like it. And our goofy question: What Disney character do you think would be your best friend if you met them in person? Bert from Mary Poppins. You know, I got to meet Dick Van Dyke two years ago. He couldn't have been nicer. And he's posing for, and he was, you know, like a lot of times when celebrities pose with you, you can tell they're just kind of going through the motions. And he was there. He was like my best buddy at that moment. And our Mickey question, if I asked you to name any Disney song at this very moment, 
What immediately comes to mind? Uh, I'm, I'm sorry to end on a sarcastic note, but I have to say let it go because, because <laughs> I've had to do so many arrangements of that song. Before that, it was Be Our Guest. It's, it's a tie between Be Our Guest and um, a Friend Like Me. It was so wonderful to talk with you, Gordon, and I really hope we can talk again soon, maybe for your upcoming album, if you have a new one coming out, and or upcoming Disney project, whatever you're up to. I know I'm definitely going to want to know, and I know the listeners are. So again, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Congratulations on your show. I think it's really awesome. 